Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Julian Cardonio, VP of Workplace from Facebook. In this episode, we talked about Facebook's obsession with user satisfaction, adoption, and retention, how Workplace first started as an internal tool for Facebook employees, and why they decided to turn it into a business. We also discussed Workplace's superpower and how they differentiate from their competition. We then dove into their top-down and wall-to-wall growth and go-to-market strategy, and finally discussed the biggest churn risk and how demand dictated the product's direction. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Julian, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Uh, For the listeners, Julian is the VP of Workplace from Facebook, uh, looking after the product's business and partnerships teams. Workplace is a SaaS collaboration and communication tool for business. Facebook's Workplace has over 5 million paid users on their platform now. Um, Julian joined Facebook in 2011 to manage the gaming team in EMEA and then led the global platform partnerships team, helping Facebook partners to build, grow, and monetize their mobile apps. Uh, Julian started his career in finance, and before Facebook, he was a director of business development at Microsoft, uh, where he created and launched the BizSpark program. Since 2012, Julian has also served on the board of French media group Le Monde. He's also the co-author of the book Kelco.com, Success Story, published by Pearson in 2005. So my first question for you, Julian, is uh, how did you end up at Facebook to begin with? Uh, you've been there for quite a while now, over nine years. Like, what was uh, the in that you got into Facebook and why did you decide to join back then? Yeah, actually, I just celebrated last week my 10, uh, uh, my 10 years uh, anniversary. Congratulations. Um, yeah. So the way I ended up at Facebook is that, you know, I was a big, a big fan of the, of the product, of course. Uh, back then, I was living in the US. I was working at Microsoft in Redmond um, and my family was in France. Uh, I'm French, as you can probably hear and guess. And yes. I love the product because it, it, it helped me to be connected with my family, my friends. I had a young, a young child. So I was posting daily pictures of, of my, my kid on, on Facebook and, and my parents loved it. So I love the product. I love the mission. And back then I was at Microsoft and I saw a few of the people that I really considered, you know, my mentors or people I was, um, you know, working closely with or people I, I, I was really looking up to 
a few of them like almost suddenly all left for Facebook. And I have to say, I did not understand the potential of Facebook as a platform for developers at that time, but they all left to join that team. And so basically I told them, look, well, well, if, you're, if you're all going there and since you're you know, much smarter than I am, it means that there, there, there must be something happening. And this is how we started talking. At the same time, Facebook was also building a platform team in, in, in Europe and they, they were looking for, 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 for some people for that team. But I, I joined because some people I, I highly respected from Microsoft left for Facebook. I knew that you know, many, many ex-Microsoft employees were being very successful at Facebook. People like Mark Vernol, for example, who's now at Sequoia. And so um, I saw the opportunity because they, they went there. But I only realized the real opportunity of Facebook as a platform to distribute uh, software and applications globally once I was there uh, 10 years ago. Very cool. Uh, so it's good to have good peers around uh, that you can trust and follow as well where they go after. Um, yeah. the, the the thing as well I'm interested is, uh, maybe you can elaborate a little bit for us, um, leading the global platform partnerships team. Like what does that entail? What does a platform partnerships team really focus and work on? So back in the days, and we're talking about uh, 2011, 2015, 2016, uh, Facebook was a platform for web and mobile developers on top of which you could uh, build or grow or monetize your applications. And so you had an entire ecosystem that went from Candy Crush via uh, Spotify um, uh, to, uh, to Uber, for example, who was using Facebook login or the Facebook Canvas platform or audience network to, to build or grow or monetize, or sometimes the three of them, uh, um, uh, their business on the, um, on, the, on, on the platform. And so it was about managing these companies, making sure they would make the best of the platform and making sure they would grow as fast as possible. So that's, that, that was really when, when the Facebook platform, especially for gaming companies, was the place to be. And then we, we help these companies to, to modify their, their business and to embrace mobile, as you, as, you, as you can see, or as you've seen, some of the, the biggest mobile games uh, on iOS and Android back in the days all started on Facebook. And so we were the team helping these companies to make that transition with go. the tools and the platform that Facebook had back in the days. Very interesting. And then I, I wonder like back in these days as well, because obviously like retention being like one of the most important metrics for Facebook. That's what the whole business relies on is making sure that they can keep eyeballs uh, there in terms of generating ad revenue. Uh, how much did this partnerships play have a role like focused on retention and how much did it have a role in terms of monetization for the business? So uh, when you had your internal team working on different partnerships, working on deals, like was the focus more in terms of like, how are we going to help these companies to generate revenue for the company or uh, were there some deals as well that were more strategic in terms of like, if we have this partner, this is going to be really good for retention for the business. I mean, there's always that principle at Facebook that when you have adoption and retention, mostly retention, you know, monetization follows. And so it, it was true for Facebook and it's all, it was also true for the partners we worked with. But I've learned a lot working with gaming companies, you know, the likes of uh, Supercell, Candy Crush, uh, King.com, uh, Playtica in Israel. Um, these guys were obsessed with retention and, and monetization on many platforms. And so, you know, even running a sales business today, I still remember or I still use some of the things I've learned from the gaming companies I used to work with back in the days. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the distribution and the monetization of, of applications, SaaS or gaming is quite similar. And, um, and it's something that Facebook took very seriously early on, as everybody knows. But that ecosystem, um, you know, has inspired a lot of entrepreneurs and even SaaS entrepreneurs, I would say. 
Absolutely. Uh, I, I love as well, like the, the notion as well, that you focus on retention and monetizational follow, like adoption, making sure people are enjoying the product and you'll be able to monetize. Uh, it's obviously- the Yeah, no, and just uh, Andrew, maybe, maybe on that, Andrew, I think it's also a mindset, um, especially for SaaS companies. When, when we started with Workplace, we wanted to build um, a product and a business, but mostly a product that people would use and love to use. We never wanted to be a, a take the money and run type of SaaS company. I've seen many companies like that. We really yeah. wanted to make sure that we would help our customers to win. And that of course the buyers would buy and would love the product, but that the users would love it as well. I have a quote from a customer that we have called Oxfam, uh, a big nonprofit organization. They actually don't pay for workplace. We give it for free to nonprofit organization. And I remember the CIO of Oxfam said, when I rolled out workplace to everyone at Oxfam, uh, it was the first time people, you know, cheered at the IT department. And that's that's really what we wanted to do. And that came from the B2B lens, the B2C lenses or the B2B uh, mindset that we had. But we wanted to make sure that we were, we were not that type of SaaS company, you know, take the money and run and that we would be yeah. obsessed with user satisfaction and adoption and retention. Yeah, I think it's really important, like you say, to have that mindset internally and that understanding because then it allows you to sort of understand where you're going to be focused. And ultimately, you become the biggest winner, though, is if uh, you, like you say, with your Oxfam case, if uh, you're actually enabling your customers to get shared with internally and making them the champions of their companies, uh, that's when you really create a sticky product and uh, people stick around and like where you are today at 5 million paid users. I'm interested then as well, like um, this notion as well of starting a SaaS business within an already existing organization, growing business like Facebook, predominantly B2C, uh, deciding to make a play into B2B and building a SaaS product. Like maybe because you must have been there during this time as well. What was that original discussion like? Like when did this sort of start kicking off and say, hey, maybe there's something we can do with our product. Maybe we can uh, have a SaaS play within B2B. Like what did the initial ideation start like? Yeah, I mean, originally Workplace was a product that was only supposed to be for Facebook employees. It was, it was not supposed to become a business. It was not supposed to be used by other, other, other companies, but we had, we had been using that product for a few years. And I think we started using a, a flavor of, of Facebook, but only for Facebook employees back in you know, 20, 2012 or 2013. But after a few years, when a few customers of Facebook saw the, how we scaled the culture, how we managed to reduce the distances while the company was scaling with people on different time zones, speaking different languages, and the speed at which we operated. When people saw that, they said, hey, we, we have the same challenges. And just like you, we don't like emails. We don't like the internet. We don't like newsletters. We don't like mailing lists. We're not happy with our chat or voice over IP and video over IP solutions. Give us what you have. Um, because they they saw and they knew that we built something great for us. We also had a lot of companies telling us that they had employees, especially what, what we would call frontline or essential employees using WhatsApp or Messenger or Facebook for work. And they told us, give us something that looks like Facebook, that is as easy to use as Facebook, that, that has no training needed, but that I can incorporate to my IT department, separated from Facebook with a different business model, give us something like that, because if my tools are not as easy to use as Facebook or WhatsApp, people will go to Facebook or WhatsApp and it's completely outside of the IT department. And so using these signals, we, we decided to give that product a try and, and we gave workplace to a few companies. Uh, I can think of booking.com, for example, I can think of uh, Danone in France, Club Med as well, XP um, um, Realty in the US. And when, when we saw that the exact same thing that happened at Facebook 
also happened at these companies, we knew we were onto something. We knew that workplace would work outside Facebook. And this is when we decided to turn it into a business and launch it in, um, in uh, 2016 uh, with a new name. The first name we had was Facebook at Work, not the best possible name. We changed it for Workplace from Facebook. And you know, uh, as of today, we now have uh, more than 5 million paying subscribers and we get to serve and connect the, the biggest or the most respected or the fastest growing companies on the planet. AstraZeneca, Walmart, GSK, Spotify, Booking.com, Grab, uh, and many others. Very cool. Um, and I love, obviously, like it's great as well that this came out of an internal um, like tool that you're using yourselves that you already found success in. And I think this is typically as well when you see some of the biggest success stories in terms of products that have been built is solving an internal need, solving it really well, and then others uh, looking as well into following suit. Um, the the thing you mentioned as well, though, I think is it sounds like you have a lot of competition and not in the, this natural sense of like direct competition, but there's so many different ways of communication that teams uh, collaborate today. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, your competition is more than just like maybe a direct competitor who offers the same sort of feature set. I'm interested, how do you view these sort of um, competition channels, if you want to call them, when it comes to the product you're building and thinking through like, how are you going to ensure that you're building a product that's going to retain customers and uh, you are having the right features without creating sort of Frankenstein uh, product again and going off the rails, I think, on the other end? I, I think we, we do have some competition when you look at a particular part of the, of the market, which is, uh, you know, internal, communi internal communication tools for knowledge workers. But when you look at the total market we are going after, which is the market of everyone who goes to work every day with a mobile phone in their pockets, I don't see a lot of companies who can have that ambition. I can see, I cannot think of a lot of companies who can connect people who never had an email, never had a desk, never had a PC before. And we can do it and we can have the right or we can have the ambition to do it because there's no training needed. I can go to any customer today or, to, or any prospects and say 2.5 billion people know how to use Workplace overnight. No training needed. And so having that familiarity of the product, if you know how to use Facebook or if you know how to use WhatsApp, you already know how to use Workplace. And knowing that when you will deploy, people will know how to use it, will use it and will love it. This is, I think, our, our superpower. And this is how we got to serve, you know, uh, a category of employees, which is a very large market, more than 2 billion people uh, that we call frontline employees in airlines, in um, retail, in um, uh, hospitality as well, who have never been connected before. So a lot of competition to connect, you know, white collars and knowledge workers, not a lot of competition to connect the rest of the market and, and to connect the, um, the, the the disconnected, I would say. But yes, of course, when, when we talk, when we have the first meeting with a buyer, whether it's someone from HR or the, the, the internal comms de department or the IT department, people pe people assume we, we do what Microsoft does or what Slack does or what Zoom does. We do something completely different. We turn companies into communities. We give a voice to everyone and we integrate with all of these solutions. But I think being able to create these communities, it's something only us can do, especially at that scale and especially with that diversity of, uh, of use cases and users. That's super interesting. I love as well, like the fact of no onboarding needed, because I think typically like in SaaS products, it's one of the biggest areas of failure when it comes to retention is not being able to effectively onboard your customer or user to establish the value. Um, but you have a, like a great point that like 
pretty much 2 billion, over 2 billion people using Facebook. They know how to use it. It's familiar. They just open their phone and they can get going. Um, And also I I see the point as well in terms of like having a unique focus on uh, your persona. That's maybe a neglected part of the market still when it comes to communication tools, but having something that really caters and enables uh, to sort of frontline um, and not uh, like really relying on things maybe like email or uh, other channels that uh, typically large organizations and more sort of the uh, white collar, I guess, type workers uh, would be familiar with. Yeah. So it, and, and I think IT has left a lot of people behind for, for too long because yeah. IT was either too complicated or too expensive. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, uh, 90% of the people who work at Walmart do not have an email it's because it's expensive. Same thing if I look at people who work in factories or people who work in stores. We came up with a solution that is democratic, that is easy to use, and that is familiar. And of course, that has the pricing it requires. But I think, you know, what I, what I like to call the next frontier of IT is to be able to go after these audiences and that, that category of workers who's been left behind and to be able to create an organization where everyone, for the first time, is equally connected, uh, informed, empowered, and even augmented by technology. And so for me, that's the future of work, especially in the post-COVID world. And I think this is what we try to bring to the to the market, and it's a value proposition and a vision that really resonates with um with uh you know the, the C suite these days. Yeah, it's very cool, and it makes a lot of sense as well. Like uh, more so, more and more now, companies are really adopting like cultures of like full transparency, uh, trying to enable like everybody within the company to have a fair voice and to be able to see, and which is amazing uh, that we're heading this direction. But like you say, there's probably not many great tools yet that facilitate this sort of transparency at scale, I think, because I think in my mind, that's what uh, something like uh, workplaces provides is to be able to sort of enable the transparency at, uh, transparency at scale and sort of give like a voice and a platform for everyone within an organization to sort of be kept up to speed with what's happening, but at the same time, be able to collaborate uh, and work together across regions. I was also interested, you mentioned sort of like uh, people across different countries and having translation services. And then it just sort of clicked as well, like the power of uh, like Facebook translation and how amazing that is and how cool it would be like working in a large organization like that, where you typically might not have an opportunity to interact with somebody, maybe in the Brazilian office who speaks uh, um, Portuguese and uh, or Spanish. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this like gives you a real opportunity to be able to communicate and get ideas and uh, collaborate with people from across uh, different countries and regions. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's the mix of uh, of the combo of translation of text and live translation of, of video plus async. So, you know, the, the problem that people have with chat apps is that you feel you have to be always on. And that if you go away for two hours or two days, you, you miss something. So uh, what I think Facebook offers that can really reduce the distance between people who work on different time zones and people who don't speak the same language is that combo of translation plus async. And Groups does that very well. The newsfeed does that very well. You don't need to be in workplace 24-7 to, to be successful as an employee or to be informed. We'll take care of, of the newsfeed of what you see and when you see that. And uh, of course, you know, being a, a native French speaker, being able to speak in French or to write in French, even when I have to communicate with my team in, in, in Brazil, as you said, or in Japan or with my customers in Norway, uh, you know, being live auto-translated is something that is uh, almost magical. But I think it's an expectation. And, and when, when that happens, people realize 
how great their, their, um, their colleagues are and how great the company is. And you get to connect with people you should have been connected before, but IT did not make it easy. Didn't and very often people say, I love workplace. And as much as I love the product we, we build, what they mean by that is that they love feeling part of a community. They love the people they work with, the people they work for. They love to be finally able to connect with everyone and to feel part of something and to understand what's important and to have a voice. And that's, I think, the, the, the magic of, uh, of workplace. Yeah, I'm seeing more and more as we're getting through this conversation. Um, so I'm interested then as well, like Facebook obviously has a really, really strong practice when it comes to retention. Like um, they worked on some really great growth initiatives in the early days, figuring out uh, specific metrics and trying to understand like how they can improve it. Going into work uh, place now, how have the sort of the skills been transferred from the B2C environment to the B2B? What did the team look like in the early days? How were you focusing on churn and retention and how do you still today? Like, is there anything unique or interesting that you've brought over from B2C to B2B? I think what we've been able to, to inherit is of course that obsession for, for the users and make sure that we were building software and selling software that people will use and love to use and with, with the metrics to prove it. Of course, we inherited, thanks to the, the data science team at Facebook, a lot of dashboards to understand what's happening, to catch signals early on and all of that. But, um, but I, I, I think, you know, workplace is a B2B business. Facebook is a B2C business. So in a B2B business, as, as you all know very well, the buyer is extremely important. If you don't have access to the buyers or if the buyers or if the admins of your workplace instance are not happy, you lose the users. So that's that's a new muscle we had to build. It's a new enterprise muscle, a new enterprise mindset we had to build and to understand that the buyers had very different expectations um, than the users. And so to be able to play these two games at the same time was something, you know, it took, it took us some time to understand it and to do it right. Um, and I think we, you know, when, when I look at the, you know, the churn we see on workplace, which is very, very minimal, or um, you can look online, all of the companies I talked about three, four, five years ago are still using workplace and still growing on workplace. Um, we, 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 it took us some time to understand exactly how to find the balance between the users of the product and the buyers of the product and who you had to optimize for and how you would track, you know, potential signals as opportunities or as potential challenges as well. Yeah, I think this is a super interesting uh, topic, something we haven't really dove into in the show. So I want to go a little bit deeper on this and just uh, try to understand like how you came to this realization. Maybe first of all, just uh, obviously coming from the B2C, B2 mindset, maybe first of all, like when did you realize um, this was something that you need to give more attention to? You needed to really try and understand the difference between the buyer persona and the user persona. I think it happened in the early days when we realized that we would not build workplace or we would not grow workplace like I would say modern SaaS companies are built. You know, most of the SaaS companies we, we see in the news these days, they, the growth is product-led. Uh, you just need to find one user or a team and then you expand from that and then eventually you get to serve more people. They start to pay and then the entire company eventually will pay. Um, Zoom does that very well. Slack is very known for that as well. Workplace was very different. Very early, we realized that um, you know, big companies, um, big SaaS buyers were engaging with us to connect everyone in their organization. Like I remember having a discussion with the CIO of Walmart in 2014, and, 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 and he said, I want, I want to give that, that product to you know, 2, billion, 2 million employees. 
So that's that's the discussion we had. And this is where we realized that as opposed to Facebook, where the growth is very viral, it's very user-based, and you expand from that, the growth of workplace and the go-to-market strategy would be very different. We would engage with buyers in the C-suite. We would evangelize that vision of a connected company, of, a, of an organization where everyone has a voice. And then we would deploy top-down and wall-to-wall. Literally, workplace doesn't work if you give it to 10% of your organization. It's for everyone or it's for no one. So it means the sales cycles can be a bit longer than what we usually see in the industry, but it also explain, uh, explains the, uh, the, the adoption and, and more importantly, the retention we have. Because once you have a voice, you, know, you can take it back from your employees. You cannot tell your employees, you've been connected in the past, you were informed in the past, you knew who you were working for, working with, we're gonna take it back and we're gonna ditch workplace. It just doesn't happen. It's yeah. not the sense or the, the sense of history. But we, I think we realized that when we understood that the way we would build workplace would be probably closer to what ServiceNow does or to what Workday does than, you know, I would say a Zendesk or, or, or a Notion. And yeah. we were cool with that. It was just a different game we had to, we had to play and learn. Yeah, that, that's, it's very interesting as well, like realizing the top-down sort of model really, like workplace is not really going to work uh, itself if you don't have the wall-to-wall coverage and having everybody uh, give visibility. So you figured this out then, you realize, okay, there's a difference between um, uh, user personas, buyer personas, and the likelihood of retention. But do you feel as well, though, like once you are man- able to sell into a company and to make that deal, like how likely was churn for for you? I think like where would you say would your biggest risk for churn be and at which stage? I would say once we are fully deployed, top-down, wall-to-wall, once we are integrated with uh, you know, the, the typical player we integrate with, you know, Microsoft on the identity side, Google as well, Okta, or Office 365 on the productivity side and G Suite. Once that is done, uh, you know, I can close my eyes and come back in four years, li- literally. Uh, what takes time is to explain that vision of a connected company, to explain that it's top-down, wall-to-wall, it's, it's everyone or no one. Whatever the size of the company is, we have many companies of 50 people, 60 people, 200 people using and loving workplace, but it has to be, it has to be everyone or no one. But once that is done, again, when you have the adoption we have, the retention we have, Churn is not something we, uh, we worry about. And we also happen to have a fantastic uh, customer success team and, and solutions architect team and, and, and a support team as well. I think we, we try to treat our customers, no matter how big they are, like, like we would treat our family. But I would say once that is done, and again, it, it, it can take time. It takes more time than I would say your, your typical modern SaaS company. Um, yeah. Most of the job is done. But it's also the very nature of the product, right? Once you have it, it's really hard to live without it. It's really hard to work without it. People get used to having a voice. People get used to be able to share feedback and to hear from the people they work they work for. Uh, and and on top of that, once you start adding bots, integrations, once workplace becomes the place where you get paid or the place you do shift management, inventory management, it's, it's very very sticky. And that's that's because of what we do and of what and, and of how the product is built and how it integrates with um, with our customers' IT stack. Yeah. Uh, going back then to sort of the decision and the focus being top down and, and needing to have that wall to wall coverage, like how did you decide this? Because you mentioned a company like Notion uh, or Slack, and uh, I think similarly, like both of these companies, um, 
you could argue as well that perhaps maybe it needs to be wall to wall for everybody to be communicating in a single channel and to everybody to using for them to work effectively. But they managed to go sort of the bottoms up route to allowing like one person or teams. Why do you why did you feel that workplace was going to be different and needed to be this top down approach? Like what was it maybe in the, the data you're seeing or in like from a qualitative perspective? Like what was it that led you to down this direction? And again, it happened by accident. When we started, we thought workplace would be for tech companies like Facebook or like Spotify and other customer of or Deliveroo as well, who's a customer of, of workplace. We thought workplace would be for company like us who operate like us, where everyone has a great PC, a great phone, and everyone is a knowledge worker. Um, but you know, very quickly when we saw where the demand was coming from, which were you know people in HR, people in commerce, people in IT, with that vision to connect everyone because they knew that the product would work for everyone in the organization and that it, it was actually the only product that, that could be that inclusive to the point where you can even serve and connect people who never had anything before. This is when we changed the, we changed the, the mindset, I would say. Uh, it was a surprise. It was a good surprise to see the appetite coming from that uh, and you know, from buyers willing to go world to world, but we, we had to change the, <laughs> the plan, which is, which is, which is okay. Very interesting. Uh, and I, I love hearing that sort of thing as well. When you start out with a plan and then just let demand dictate the direction uh, yeah. that you take. Uh, that must have been also interesting as well, like insights from your perspectives or going out thinking, okay, we, we built this for us and we think it's useful for other people like us. And then seeing sort of demand uh, increase uh, from other areas and other aspects. Uh, how did that look like internally as well? Like what was the triggers in point in time when you said, okay, maybe we need to maybe rethink our direction. Maybe we need to think the way we're positioning ourselves. And because I think the strategy as well then really changes a lot of the features that you build, uh, changes the roadmap entirely. It changes like the sales team, the dynamic, like the whole business pretty much changes and you you set out on a course to start with. So what did that decision look like internally? Like how did uh, it come about and like how long did it take you to actually make the decision to say, okay, this is the direction, let's do it. I would say it took us a year, a year and a half. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the founder of Facebook, was very supportive of workplace because of the mission. You know, Facebook creates communities. I think workplace creates meaningful work communities. And if I look at the way people that um, you know, save the children, for example, one of our customers or Spotify or, or um, uh, AstraZeneca use workplace, it's really about communities. And that's, that's you know, what Facebook is good at famous for and this is what we want to keep doing so there was a, always a lot of support from uh, from you know the people who created and built facebook but we had to prove that it could work we had to prove that that internal product could become a business and you would not believe you know how many times we tried to to get other companies to use workplace and how many of these deployments failed because we did not understand the importance of SSO. We did not understand the importance of the integration with Microsoft. Or we did not have back in the days any credibility or we did not have the, the, the security slash privacy certifications that you would expect from a SaaS vendor. You know, SOC 2, SOC 3, ISO, Privacy Shield, you name it. We did not have all of that. And so we had to build our credibility, one security certification at a time and one customer at a time. But what really opened everybody's eyes is when we had a few companies uh, of all sizes, I can think of you know, one in France called My Little Paris, which was one of the first companies to go workplace. 
and more significantly, the government of Singapore uh, with uh, 250,000 people, um, Royal Bank of Scotland as well. Almost at the same time, which was eight, late 2015, all of these organizations told us, we tried workplace, we use it, we love it, we're okay to pay for it. And so you, you know, when you build a SaaS business, when you know you can have one or two or three of these, then you know you can have a thousand. But what we needed was that, that validation from the market, from the buyers telling us, we use it, we love it, we wanna pay for it, and we will replace something that we had for that. Because then you know you have a chance. And then you know it's all about be, being more scalable, more repeatable. It just took us more time because we were start, starting from scratch to understand how to get these first brands and how to build that credibility coming from a very different background. But I, I guess it's very similar to what you know, AWS or, or G Suite did back in the days at Amazon or, or Google. Yeah. It's it's interesting as well. You mentioned things like security and needing to sort of earn your credibility. Uh, like in my mind, I would have thought like some a company from Facebook, these sorts of things are immediately solved. But I think these are like uh, early stage startups. And as you're trying to get yourself established, like these are one of the biggest hurdles to begin with, like getting yourselves into the doors of bigger companies, more established is really uh, making sure you have all your security practices locked down, making sure that you have uh, your certifications and I just found it weird that uh, like Facebook themselves didn't have uh, this ready from day one. So, yeah. Um, and you know, you also need to find customers that are willing to bet on you, on your team, on your product and to co-create with you. Uh, I remember, you know, it took two years for Workplace to close AstraZeneca as a customer. And during the first meeting and the day they launched, they truly helped us to become enterprise ready. They told us, we think you have, you have a great product. The people who use it love it, but if you want to, to win the deal or if you want to serve everyone at AstraZeneca, this is what you need. Integration with Microsoft, integration with, uh, I think, uh, Zoom, uh, WebEx as well, back in the days, uh, you need that, that security certification. So by, by getting that feedback from customers, who, which are willing to, to bet on, 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 on us, we, uh, I think we, we've been able to take a few, a few shortcuts. But it, you know, it's it's hard to find these companies, you know, that are that innovative, that are, that are willing to co-create with the with the software company. And I'm, yeah. I'm I'm extremely grateful for that. And you know, I, I talked about AstraZeneca, but you know, Save the Children was the same. Uh, GSK as well. Uh, Walmart helped us a, a lot. Starbucks as well gave us a lot of insights on how to serve people who work in the store who never in, in the stores who never had any sort of SaaS or any sort of cloud identity before. So we've yeah. been able to use that and to turn it into a roadmap. Absolutely. That's, that's super important and valuable. Like I've actually, I'm launching my own company now myself and uh, I've been actually reaching out to old colleagues uh, at Hotjar, uh, asking them to do like for security reviews, uh, to like analyze and give me feedback and see what's missing. They're speaking to like legal and saying, okay, like from a legal perspective, what do you need? But actually having customers that give you that trust and like push you in the right direction to make sure you have it, I think is definitely an awesome position to be in. Um, so cool. I uh, see we're running up on time, Julian. It's been great chatting. I want to save some time for a couple of questions. ask every guest that joins the show. Uh, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company. You arrive. Trainer retention is not doing great. The CEO comes to you and says, we need to turn things around. We have 90 days. You're in charge. What do you do? Uh, I would go and talk to as many customers as possible. I think the customers, you know, are always right. They never lie. What the problem that many SaaS companies have, and I've seen that many times, is that there's too much distance between the people building the product, the people selling the product, and the people using the product. So if you want to understand what go, what's going wrong in the metrics or the numbers, uh, you need to talk to customers and, and try to aggregate 
and understand you know, as fast as possible and as best as possible, how do they feel about it? What's working, what's not working, what the competition is doing better. But I think the best SaaS companies, the companies that I really admire, they have that, that customer obsession and there's literally no distance between sometimes the CEO herself or himself and the people using and buying the product. And when you have that, you think you're unstoppable. But many companies forget that as they grow or as they scale. Yeah, I think that's one of the practices I'm definitely trying to bring with me now. So I think Hotjar was super obsessed uh, with the customer from that side. Uh, we previously had uh, like a customer advisory board. I think I first read about it in first round capital, uh, had a, a blog post about it. We'll add this in the show notes. But the idea of like having an, an advisory board of customers that like what I'm trying to do now as well is pull in a Slack group together, 20 uh, customers that are uh, uh, domain experts in their specific field, but then really like as close as possible to the product, to the team. So if marketing has anything, they need insights or information on like there's customers directly there, they can have a chat with them within our Slack. Uh, I think having this extremely close touch, not just with one individual team like success, but making sure that everybody in the org has access to and can be speaking to customers on a regular basis is it is by far the best uh, position you can put yourselves in. I have a I have a story on that. I have one of my customers, a company called Smartsheet. It's a SaaS company in Seattle. They they went public uh, a few a few years ago. It's also a partner of Workplace. I've heard that the the number one bug finder in the company was the CEO and founder, Mark uh, Mark Mader. Um, he's so close to the product and to the users that at, at least back in the days when I heard that story two or three years ago, he was the number one bug find, finder. And, you know, you might think it's a distraction for the CEO of the company. I think it's a competitive advantage for him, yeah. for his employees, for his customers and for his shareholders. Yes. Uh, I, mean, I don't know how he can scale that, but yeah. I have a ton of respect for that. For it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, I think you need to be always, always, always speaking. It's something so easy to say, but in practice as well, it's so easy to forget as well. Uh, so having the yeah. discipline to keep pushing and keep going at it, like, that is uh, super impressive. Last question then. Uh, what's one thing you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I would say the, the importance of pricing and packaging. I think the way we, we launched Workplace, uh, the, the pricing and packaging was, wasn't right. I think we did not make it easy for our customers to, to understand uh, how it worked or even at, re at renewal time, uh, it was it was always a complicated discussion. I think we tried to bake into the pricing and packaging the confidence that we had into the product um, to show our customers that if workplace did not work for some reason, it was our fault, not their fault, our fault. And I think this is something our customers appreciate. And it took us some time to understand how to get it right in terms of uh, in terms of pricing and packaging. It can have a massive impact, as you know, on uh, on, on retention churn and and, and customer slash buyer satisfaction. Absolutely. I think definitely when it comes to pricing and packaging, this is one area that's often overlooked in the beginning. And it's like, when you get started, it's like, okay, like, what are we going to charge? Look around a few other companies, what are they doing? Let's slap a price on it and this is it. But when you truly understand the mechanics behind pricing and packaging and the influence that it can have on uh, retention and uh, monetization overall as a business, it is worth spending the time to do the research, to do the work, to really understand like how to price and package your product correctly, because it not only saves you from losing customers, but it also helps like with growing customers and ensuring they stick around and expand with you as well. So it's the biggest leave I think to get to net negative retention as well is like having a really solid pricing and packaging strategy. Uh, I think it's also like you mentioned that one of the things that people often as well get scared of is 
to experiment with pricing and packaging and to change it. And I think, in my yeah. opinion, I think pricing and packaging is just as much a part of your product as the features that go into it as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I found that customers, of course, are always willing to, uh, to help, uh, even if sometimes uh, it means the prices could go higher. I think testing that with customers and making feel part of the, of the discussion through uh, some, some sort of advisory board can, uh, can, make, a, can make a difference. Awesome. Well, Julian, it's been a pleasure hosting you today. Thank you so much for joining. And I wish you best of luck now going into 2021. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Andrew, for the invitation and for the chat. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm, and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.